Welcome to the Game Plan Podcast with Judah Newby and Brian Perkins, breaking down all things Seahawks. 52 yards for the time. Rich down, ball put down. He gives up, long enough, end over ran. It is, no, it's short. It's short just beneath the crossbar. He misses. Welcome back. This is the Game Plan Podcast on 1029thegame.com. He's Brian Perkins. I'm Judah Newby. The morning after the Seahawks suffered a brutal 34-31 loss to the Atlanta Falcons at home. Seattle now drops to 6-4 and four on the outside looking in of the uh, NFC playoff standings if it ended today, thankfully, or unthankfully. There are six games left of the regular season. Uh, this is the most brutal loss so far this year for the Seahawks, and we're going to talk about it right now. Alongside Brian Perkins, I'm Drew Danubi. Perkins, um, I mean, the fake field goal is is what comes to mind immediately for me. But in all, Seattle loses this game by three. Blair Walsh lines up a 52-yarder. It's on frame. It's short uh, with seven seconds left. So much to look at from this game. Uh, Russell Wilson trying to put the team on his back in the fourth quarter. A little too... It's just too little too late. And uh, Pete Carroll... Calling for the fake field goal at the end of the first half. Pete Carroll thinking about trying to get greedy with uh, one last, you know, five-yard or six-yard out route to get Blair Walsh a little bit extra distance. Ends up not doing it, partly because he doesn't have a timeout because he foolishly challenges a Doug Baldwin drop pass on third down that Doug Baldwin foolishly asked Pete Carroll to challenge when he knew damn well he dropped the damn ball. And I haven't been this frustrated in a long time. And, uh... I don't know. Where do you where do you start with this? I don't even know where to begin. Um, I, I mean, you can hear in my voice. I'm struggling to find a place to begin. So many. We literally just walked right into a studio, popped the mics, and started talking. So <laughs> no show sheet, no anything. This is just organic reaction to yeah. a tough, tough, horrible loss. Well, let's let's start with this. Let's let's go all the way back to the first quarter. Okay. Let's start there. That sounds okay. Let's start with the fact that, first of all, the the one shining beacon of this game for Seattle, like the one thing that was consistent was Tyler Lockett returning the football because he turned he returned it out past the 35-yard line. Which I was going to say, it, was, it seemed like he directly heard your criticisms all year and was like, <laughs> screw Perkins, I'm going to yeah. return every kick and watch this because he had a phenomenal return game. It, it, absolutely. It, fantastic. Um and let's talk about the horrible interception to start the opening drive. Yeah, what was that? Did he just not see him? I mean, because the pass wasn't close, and it was right to Des Trufant. Yeah, it was. I mean, it, Trufant almost was like, what? I yeah. mean, like, if you look at the like, he didn't even expect it. You know, I mean, everyone was shocked. I don't know where he was looking on that A ball. horrible interception on your second play of the game. That gets returned deep into Seahawks territory to the thirty-five yard line. So there's, and you're already down seven nothing. Yeah, and then Jeremy Bleeping Lane oh drops an interception that is literally in his hands. Like that is not like one of those like oh he could have had that. Like dang it, this was like the ball floated straight into his hands and he dropped the football. How many times are we going to see Seahawk players get a ball right in their hands and not pick it off? Cam Chancellor had one or against Washington, I think too. That was just inexcusable. I mean, yeah. you got to catch that football. I mean, that's a seven-point game right there, right? I mean, that's yeah, and, it's huge. And, and by the way, that's a ten-point swing. If you think about the fact that Seattle, at the very least, would have had a field goal, they were already what at the thirty-one-yard line uh, when Russ threw that pick. It was at so, Se- uh, Atlanta's thirty-one. Yeah, a second and one. Second and one. 
by the way, another second and one situation later in the game, run pass to Eddie Lacy, stuffed, third and one, doesn't convert. So second and short did not uh, do Seattle any favors. But then, obviously, you look a little bit later in the quarter, Russell Wilson has the bad fumble that gets returned for the touchdown as well because the offensive line just says, here, good sir, please, saunter on by me straight to Russell Wilson. Um, I mean, the, you look at those those two plays alone, Judah, the pick that gets returned, the dropped interception, and then you add the third play of the fumble return for the touchdown. I mean, I mean, we're talking about 17 points. 17 point minimum swing in this football game. Yeah. How do you overcome that? I don't care how mundane Atlanta's offense has been this year, and I don't care what you've done in the past. That is very difficult to overcome, even if it happens that early in a football game. Yeah. And, and it came to bite him in the ass. Oh, it definitely did. And not to excuse even the head coaching blunders. I mean, this might have been Pete Carroll's worst game as a Seahawk head coach. I couldn't believe some of the calls and the decisions. Um, I don't know what – I. I've never, I mean, I know Pete has been a very aggressive tactician, I guess, and he's kind of hung his hat on that at times, like loving to zig where other teams like to zag and be unpredictable if, if you can and take chances. Um, but you can't forget the context of the game. To leave three points on the board at the end of the first half, that's just an inexcusable move that doesn't make any goddamn sense in the world to me. And he needs to answer for that. That was a horrible, horrible decision that cost the team the football game. I could not believe it. It's It reminded me a little bit, obviously, of the Buffalo game in 2012 where the Seahawks were up by, I don't know, 30 points. This was in Toronto, and they ran a fake punt, and it went for 40 yards or something. Total unnecessary play. But they ran it because they saw the look in the Bills' defense that they had game planned for, and basically were like, well, hey, if we see this look, we're automatically audibling to our fake. And that's great, but it if you if you decide to do that just for the sake of running it, you're totally divorcing yourself from the context of the football game. And in that context, late in the first half, you're talking about seven seconds to go on the clock. And what happens at best with that play? I mean, there's a there's a ten percent chance that it goes for a touchdown. If that. If that. And if you don't get a touchdown. You're hoping that there's still enough time on the clock to call another timeout and kick another field goal. What the hell were you thinking? <laughs> and, and here's the thing, too. And I love Pete Carroll, but God dang, what was that, Perkins? Well, not only that, but it's not like it was a 55-yard field goal attempt and they were Chip hoping shot. to trick. Yeah, it was, what, 35 yards? I mean, it was such a low percentage play. And it obviously really blew up in their face because Wilson gets, you know, dropped for, you know, what, a two-yard loss or whatever. Yeah, great but, play by Gary Grady Jarrett. But guess what? Grady Jarrett had three sacks in Super Bowl 51, and you're asking Tyler freaking Ott to block him. Your long snapper who plays. You guys, <laughs> I am so pissed at that. I can't even tell you. I haven't been this fired up in a long time. Here's part of the problem, Perkins. It's because as a football fan, like, I've known how to pace myself with my emotions with this team. Like, Especially after. Until later and later in the year. And Pete yeah. Carroll said it himself. Like, the season doesn't start until Thanksgiving. You yeah. know, like, like that's a go-to line. Well, I, I understand that. But now you're at the point of the season where this Monday night game, this included a important part of the season. And the coaching staff failed this team. Big time. And it came back on the head coach. And you won't often hear me say that because, obviously, I'm a huge Pete Carroll fan. But part of the reason why I love Pete Carroll is because he is um, – he is, uh, he he has he's honest, and he will uh, self-examine 
Like I read his book. It was I learned a lot from it, and it's great. But he's got to have the humility, to, even for a coaching legend like him, to go back and look at what he did in this game and realize that it cost his football team. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you, one hundred and ten percent. The fake field goal is so frustrating. And here's the okay. So there's like a lot of things that went wrong coaching wise in this game. Okay, Seattle, by the way, was two of six in the red zone in this football game. Again, the red zone woes come back to bite them in the ass. Pete Carroll has to stop. He has to separate himself from the mindset that he still has an elite defense. Okay? Cam Chancellor's out for the year. By the way, kick in the nuts. Like, such a kick in the nuts. Richard Sherman, out for the year. Cliff Averill, out for the year. Mike Bennett, not the same player he used to be, clearly. I don't know if it's the foot or whatever. He had the tackle for loss, whatever. He didn't do dick most of the game. You cannot play with that mindset anymore. You can't think that your defense is going to get the stops that it has in years past. Atlanta was 9 for 14 on third down in this game, including a third and 14 conversion and a couple of third and eight conversions. This is not your, I want to say your parents' Seahawks team, but if it was your parents' Seahawks team, they'd have three wins. This is not the Seahawks of 2012 or 2013, folks. And Pete Carroll has to come to that realization that you you have to put more in the hands of Russell Wilson, but at the same time, you can't make boneheaded, dumb bleep plays like a fake field goal with seven seconds left in the first half. To what end would that play? And you heard Pete talking about it after the game, like, oh, man, if that if he doesn't make that play, that could be a touchdown. Okay, well, he first of all, he made the play. And secondly, what are, like you said, what are the odds? That is not a risk. That's a – I think I saw someone on Twitter say that's a miscalculation. And that's exactly what that was. You know, it it uh I parallel that fake field goal move with the Doug Baldwin challenge in this regard. I think it was pride that got the better of Pete Carroll. Hubris. A lack of humility, a lack of willingness to accept reality. And you know, you can make, you know, philosophical claims on that, but I'm talking about even within the moments of the game. What's, you know, there's there's a attraction to to bucking conventional wisdom with the Seahawks. There's always been that attraction, right? Yeah, and they've done well at doing that. In at times, many cases, many cases in terms of like <laughs> developing players, even and things like that. They've got they've gone away from your traditional script, and it's worked out well for them. Yeah, the way they've developed the defense, and even going with Russell Wilson, I think would be at the mindset top of that list. bringing in guys to help with yes. um, with mental fortitude and things like that. Yes. as Yes, well. so. I will I will grant them that those are more grand in scope um pieces of evidence to that mindset. But when it comes to operating within the framework of a football game, I think you have to take a humility pill in that in that regard and just realize you're right, realize that you don't have the margin for error to make risky calls with this year's team that you've had in years past. Understand what you have. I think you're exactly right on that because that will remind you of what your margin for error is. Okay, you may have been practicing that look. You may really, really think that that is what it is that's going to work. You may really, really think that. But don't you have to at some point tell yourself, hey, man, look, we got you got to go through that calculation. And instead of, because what Pete's doing, he's trying to stay true to himself. He's like, his thought process, because I've done this too, his thought process as 
as an optimist, as someone who is completely believe in yourself and it will come to fruition, is I see an opportunity. I'm going to pounce on that opportunity. And we're going to make the most of it. And we're going to make the most of it. And while that, as an overall philosophy, has bared good fruit within the Seahawks franchise, within the frameworks of coaching inside the game, it can totally bite you in the butt. And it did, not only in that regard, but in the Doug Baldwin challenge, which lost him a crucial timeout. Both in those situations, it was Pete Carroll letting his own pride get the best of him. That's how I'm characterizing it. It was his pride that said, I'm going to run this fake field goal because we've been practicing all league. Like, that's what we do philosophically here. And it was Doug Baldwin's pride that was like, challenge that ball. There's no way Doug Baldwin thought he made that catch. It was so completely incomplete. Obviously incomplete. And he gets up because he's embarrassed that as the leader of the receiving court, he dropped a crucial third down. I've been there. I've been there like as a high school baseball player. I'll take a I'll take a strike three on the outside corner and a crucial at bat, and I'll turn around back to my dugout and be like, that was so outside. That was so outside. <laughs> Such a ball. And in my head, I knew it was a strike. But you react that way because you're trying to save face. Doug Baldwin was effing saving face because as the leader of the receiving court, he dropped a third down that was right in his paws. And he dropped it. And he comes back and he says, challenge it because I think I caught it because he wants to save face. And Pete Carroll is like, well, hey, we're a team. We're a team. I got the back of my star receiver. I'm going to trust him. It was so obviously incomplete, Perkins. And if they have that timeout... You can approach that final drive so many different ways, and it failed them because of their pride. I, it sounds like a church sermon I'm giving now, but I kid you not. I, I like kid it. you not. I've I was really I had some intense emotions watching this game from start to finish out of Buffalo Wild Wings, <laughs> and I hate myself today. <laughs> Go ahead, I've talked too much. No, no, I I I, I get where you're coming from, and then the final, even the final drive. You know, you look at the final drive. By the way, how are you, as an offensive line, only taking on three rushers and Russell Wilson is still under pressure every freaking drop back on that final drive? I mean, they were literally dropping eight men into coverage and the offensive line still couldn't block to save their lives. But let's move beyond that just for a second. Seattle moving the ball very well, getting into field goal range. Then two freaking dump offs. Two dump offs. Why didn't they spike the football before that throw to Jimmy Graham? And then you dump it off to J.D. McKissick on the long side of the field and expect him to get out of bounds after gaining two yards? I mean, horrible clock management in the final, in the final, and I don't know who that's on. I don't, you know, is that Russell Wilson making that decision on the Well, I think it goes back to the Washington game and the Houston game before that with their decisions to always have pedal to the metal in in those situations. And look, if they had a timeout, it'd be different. Well, now they're one for two in those situations because of that. So, I mean, so... I think I, that's on Russell Wilson, to be honest. I think he needs to Those were both poor decisions. take a chill pill and spike the ball. The, the one to Jimmy Graham I, I was a little bit okay with, but then you got, I don't know. That was also very frustrating because you could clearly tell by the fact that they lined up to try to run a play at the end of the game that they were not comfortable with Blair Walsh kicking from 52 yards. Of, and, look, and 52 the, is still a long field goal. I know a lot of NFL kickers make that regularly, but Blair Walsh doesn't have the leg he used to, and that's a long field goal. And not only that, but... Outside of the penalty where Bryant was kicking on like the 50-yard line or whatever after that penalty, was there one kick that was a touchback in that game? 
There were a couple, yeah. The air was really heavy. I mean, Tyler Lockett- Walsh had one where I was like, oh, it's nice to see his leg back. Yeah. Yeah, one. Okay, so one in that game. I mean, and think of all the touchdowns there were. There were a lot of kickoffs in that game. My Mm -hmm. point being, the air was clearly very heavy, and you could almost tell with the way that Walsh was smiling afterwards that, uh, you know what it reminds me of a little bit? Was the NFC Championship game a few years ago, Hmm. back in 2013, with, you know, when when Hauschka went out on the field and said, I can't make that, and they went for it. And it was about the same distance, wasn't it? it, was wasn't a, it about yeah, it was about, I think it was like, no, I think it was in the high 40, like 48 or 49 degrees, 49. <laughs> but still, you know, it was very cold that night, mm-hmm. much like it, it got last. It ended up really cooling down in the fourth quarter, you know, in Seattle during that time. So, you know, I, I got to tell you, as they lined up for it, I had like no faith that he was going to make it. I didn't think he would necessarily kick it short, but... After what had happened two weeks ago, I did not feel very confident that he was going to nail a 52-yard field goal. Not at all. To force no. overtime, and I said they didn't do enough. They just, in the end, they didn't do enough. And the, the mistakes that they've been able to overcome over, over all these years, all the things that the defense has been good enough and this and that, and they've always been able to make plays, and this year, they're coming up short every time. I, you know, I, I, might, I might add something here, too. Because I don't think you can say if they had Cam Chancellor and Richard Sherman, they would have won this game. Yeah. Necessarily. Now, I, I know, I look, I was watching Jeremy Lane very closely, and they you mentioned what? They were 9 of 14 on third down. They were, Matt Ryan was finding Jeremy Lane on any third down. And if, whether it was Sanu or Julio, he was going after Jay Lane. And that's a tough cover. That's just smart quarterback play. And credit Matt Ryan, he was on point. Yeah. Like, he, he was he was not missing throws. Though and, he threw for under 200 yards for the first time in, like, 45 games, which is Which bizarre. is amazing to think about because <laughs> the way it felt yeah. was that he was getting anything he wanted. And they didn't run the football exceptionally well. No, but they ran it for, like, five and six yards on first down a lot. Yeah. But, so, there were, it's weird. Running the football for them, there were a lot of times where they tried to run outside and it just got blown up. You know, those little shovel passes things, and, and and the Seahawks did a great job stringing stuff to the outside, but then there were a lot of other first downs where they were getting six yards a chunk. Yeah. Especially late in the game, it felt that way. And, yeah. And I credit Tevin Coleman, because I, I think he did a nice job running the ball for them without Devontae Freeman. Um, And the wide receivers for Atlanta. Sanu's touchdown catch, Julio's sideline catch, Julio's deep ball down the right side. Oh, my God. Those guys can ball. And yeah. uh, Justin Hardy, too, made a few... Really, really clutch catches. And Toy Lolo going deep, like on a pretty, that's like exactly the same play that they ran in 2016, week six. Um, I don't know. I I, I would be remiss if I didn't say congratulations to the Falcon offense because they played a really, really good football game. Shaq Griffin going out early certainly didn't help either. so, So maybe I'm wrong in suggesting that, you know, Sherman and Chancellor would have won this game for Seattle, but... I was pretty impressed with what Atlanta did offensively in this game. I think Sherman would have caught the ball that Jeremy Lane dropped. I don't, you know, um, so I don't know. I'm not sure if they throw that ball if it's Sherman. Maybe not. Because I think they deliberately tried to target Lane a lot. By the way, fun fact, this is going to make you happy. The Seahawks are still on pace to be the most uh, penalized team in NFL history. Awesome. They're on pace for 164.8 penalties. The record is 163. Who's the most penalized player in the NFL this year? Any oh, guesses? I, it's got to be a Fetty. It is. Yeah. 13 penalties this season. 
had two last night. And he could have had a third, except they called a hold on Dwayne Brown instead. <laughs> Offensive line play was really, really bad. Really bad. And yet, and yet, before the Mike Davis injury, there was signs of life in the run game. Mike freaking Davis. Came out of nowhere. So congrats to John Schneider for picking him up and putting him on the active roster on Tuesday. But uh, he's been the best since Chris Carson as far as optics. Without a as doubt. As far as who's contributed in the run game. Eddie Lacy cannot run the football less. I mean, I... He's just not a good football player, guys. Not I don't a good know, football player. I don't know why they're still riding that horse. Why was Rawls inactive? They must really not trust Rawls at all. They, they I mean... I would take McKissick over both of those guys anyway right yep. now. But can he even stay healthy? I mean, you know, it's a heavy workload. It's just... Nine penalties for 106, by the way, yesterday. Yeah. But to the... Sorry, I didn't mean to distract from the run game. Um, outside of Russell Wilson, McKissick went 7 for 30 in rushing. That's 4.3. Davis was 6 of 18 for three yards of carry, but we'll talk about him more in a moment. Three carries for two yards for Eddie Lacy, and that was over three carries too many. <laughs> Um, but I bring up Mike Davis as well because I did want to give Daryl Belville a shout out here. <clears throat> the halfback screen is actually in the Seahawks playbook. And it actually worked. And it works. And uh something that was, did not happen for the first couple years of Russell Wilson's tenure. Heck this year. I mean, yeah. where's the screen pass been this year? I feel like they've never really been great at executing screen passes. No, and calling them. I haven't really seen a sample size, a whole lot of screen passes. That's true, but when they do, they don't seem to work. Like, it's either incomplete or like a three-yard loss. Like, I feel, that's how I've always felt. I thought it was a good part of the game plan because of Atlanta's ridiculous aggressiveness on defense. Yeah. They pursue like crazy. Yeah. So, the antidote for that is a nice, well-executed screen, and it worked a couple of times to uh, Mike Davis, who finishes with two catches for 41 yards. So they they worked really well both times. Yeah, no, they did. And there's your silver lining was Davis. Hopefully he's okay. I mean, God. Well, groin injury. Yeah. Oh, good. Early okay. early third quarter. So yeah. we'll see. Yeah, we'll see what happens. But, you know, the run game was – and the other silver lining was they did not run the ball that much outside of Russell Wilson. Like, what, 16 carries between – 13 carries between the other two – the other – uh, 13 carries, yeah. 13 carries for 60 yards. I guess my point is the run game felt more complimentary to the pass than the other way around. Yep. And that's how it needs to be, I think, at this point. But, man, you know, it's the unfortunate situation that Russell Wilson is now in, who, by the way, accounted for 88% of Seattle's offense again this game, is he cannot make mistakes. With the way the defense is playing, with the the injuries that they've had, he, and the coaching they're getting. Yes, and the drop passes from his receivers. I would even argue that Jimmy Graham, I know it was a tough catch, but that catch he had in the end zone. That's such a tough play. He's actually falling down not, on a bomb. That, I, every, I, I, I know what you mean because everybody in it, the bar it the went last like night was through like, his hands. Jimmy! Yeah. As if it was an easy catch. It was not. It was not. It so that's why I don't want to call it like a drop. It did go but, through his hands. Though. But You're it right. did go through his hands. Yeah. It would have been an incredible play, but mm-hmm. it, one that he could have made, right? Like, I think we could both say that, like, he. How about Richardson? Gator arming a ball that was right to him. Yeah. So, with the way that his unfortunately receiving core has been playing at times this year and the offensive line being as bad as it is, Wilson cannot afford the mistakes that he made in the first half. And that's not fair to him because, look, interceptions, turnovers, those happen. Now, the interception was terrible, but 
you get what I'm saying. Those mistakes happen in games, and usually teams can overcome as long as it's not, you know, a complete backbreaker. But Wilson has to be godlike for them to win at this point well, against teams like Atlanta. He was almost godlike in this game. He um, was minus the t- minus the two turnovers. I actually had more issue with the fumble than I did the pick, just because the pick was so weird that it happens. The fumble. When you're getting rushed, you have to protect the ball. And Russell's been so good at protecting the ball, and he was—he didn't protect the ball. No, he didn't. He'd... And it led to a touchdown. So. Yeah. So, and but my point being is—is is, yeah, that was frustrating to see. But because Seattle is struggling in so many other areas, it really puts him in an imposition where he has to be—I mean, pretty damn near close to perfect. And he played well last night outside of those plays. He ran the football exceptional. That pump fake he had that knocked the linebacker on his ass, I can't remember who it was. It's Vic Beasley. Vic Beasley. Oh, wait, no, Devondre Campbell, I think. And then he juked Vic Beasley later on. That was just beautiful. I mean, it was incredible. He was yeah. running the ball so well. Yeah. The touchdown run he had was really nice, cutting back against the grain there. Super nervous on that one, by the way. Like That was fourth down, wasn't it? It was yeah. fourth down, but Oof. I actually I felt like he could have ran or thrown for that touchdown. There were a couple guys open. It was McKissick's run where McKissick had a wide-open lane to the end zone if he would have put his foot in the ground and cut up field, and he still yeah. tried to follow his blockers, and it got blown up by Beasley. That was actually open for a pretty easy touchdown, and McKissick would have made the right cut. But I liked Bevel giving Russell Wilson the opportunity to get on the edge, yeah. right? Huh, we interesting. What happens when you lot. give your quarterback some, uh, when you give your mobile quarterback an opportunity yeah. um, to make a play with his legs? Yeah. Dumbass. I know we're being— Should have been something you've, you've done the last three years. Sure, but it worked last night, and you know what? The Graham thing is a real thing. Graham's good, man. Graham is coming through in the red zone real nice lately. Yeah, though their red zone play was garbage again. Overall, 2 of 6. 2 of 6 in the red zone. And that's been something that's killed them this year. And Judah, with this loss, which, you know, I predicted it last week when we did the the pod. Right. Which was before Cam was was ruled out. Before Cam was out. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, he was going to be out for the game, but not out for the season at that point. But with this loss... (laughs) At this point, I don't even know what what you what you're going to expect. I mean, yeah. Seattle has at least three losses left this year. Yeah. I mean, I think with their schedule, I mean, ten and six is is your best case scenario. Let, let's finish by looking at the that real quick here in the final minutes. Um, but quick uh, shout out to the defense when they had to get a stop there at the end to do so. Um, you know, on they have a they're down by three with one timeout and three minutes left in the game. Six yard run by Tevin Coleman. To set up second and four. Yeah, and then you were like, the minute he had that run, weren't you just like, oh, crap. Oh, yeah. When you get, <laughs> it reminded me of the Houston game because yeah. they got a similar gain yeah. on, on first down. And then one, big time play by the defense to get a, a one-yard rush on Coleman. Two-minute warning setting up third and three, and I'm scared witless. I'm like, third and three for Atlanta. They get this first down. It's, it's all over. And uh, Sheldon Richardson comes up with his first sack as a Seahawk. Um that was a great rush, and that was a huge play. At that point, I thought Seattle was going to win because they were giving getting the ball back. I, the, I really thought it was going to be Houston all over again. The, the pass rush finally came through because they hadn't done no. anything all game. No. So it was, I mean, pass rush has been so disappointing this year. And, and Ryan was getting the ball out real quick. Ryan was knowing where any extra rushers were coming from. He was really good. He was. But Sheldon Richardson, huge sack there. That, that I really thought was going to help him win the game, and it did not. Can I ask you a question? Because this is another thing I saw that I look at as a coaching gaffe. Why didn't they onside kick it? Um, you give yourself two opportunities. Okay, so in theory, I remember Atlanta's- going through this. 
Um, I think I remember going through this in my head and not uh, being disappointed and kicking it deep because of the field position argument. You only needed a field goal to tie the game. So the priority there should be field position, and therefore you want to pin them deep, especially when they have everybody up to cover the onside kick. Though, unfortunately, Seattle still ended up pinning themselves deep because they had another damn penalty. Um, Yeah, but that's not... you. Well, you don't know that. No, but that's what I'm saying is going into that, it looked like Seattle was going to have good field position at the 35-yard line yeah. to start that drive. And like, I thought another, the penalty was going to be on Atlanta, too. Well, it was, yeah, it was at the line of scrimmage, which is bizarre. They be... never showed the replay. Thanks, yeah. guys. So I have no idea what, what the call was. The officiating that game was really bad. Um, there were a couple, and I'm not even talking like bad calls towards Seattle, but twice in that game they screwed up where the ball should have been marked. Yeah, I don't know. How does that happen? How did they rule Eddie Lacy a touchdown? How, who saw that? They're from very strange plays, and like they were very inconsistent with pass interference. Um, Sounds about right. But I mean, even like okay, the one that they called on Seattle was ticky tack, but then the one they called on Atlanta, I thought was kind of ticky tack, and then the one that they where didn't like call Paul Richardson's arm was held down, like they didn't call it at all. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, if that's pass interference, how is that not passing? You know what I mean? It was very inconsistent, which was frustrating too. But yeah, whatever. <clears throat> there are a lot of different factors played into it. And Seattle has their back against the wall. Is this the first time in the Russell Wilson area they've had two losses at home? I think it is. Wow. I no 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 no. That can't be right. They've had to have a two two home loss season in the past, haven't they? I don't think so. Really? Okay, I got to look this up now. Schedule. Rookie season in two thousand and twelve. <clears throat> they were undefeated at home in 2012. They? I think they were undefeated at home, yeah. 2013, they didn't lose to at home. No, they had that one loss at home to Arizona. Yep. And that might be it. 2014, lost at home to Dallas and didn't lose at home again. Wow, Tony Romo won. It's a trailing field. Remember that? That third down in like a mile? Yeah, that game sucked. Terrence Williams. (laughs) Super frustrating. Uh, 2015, they lost at home to Carolina. That was tough. When they blew the 17-point lead or whatever. Oh, and they lost at home to the Rams. And they lost at home to the Rams. So their second two loss, because last year I don't think they lost two at home. They only lost one. But Yeah. um, Brutal. Yep. All right, so where uh, does this leave them going forward? So this is around the time of year where I notoriously just scour the standings right around Thanksgiving and then just do all my playoff scenarios. So we're certainly going to be talking about that moving forward. But you got the Eagles at 9-1. and one. That's going to be the one seed. The Vikings at 8-2. and two. The Saints at 8-2. and two. Um, Lions at 6-4. and four. Panthers 7-3. and three. Falcons 6-4. and four. Rams 7-3. and three. And Seahawks 6-4. and four. So... The general thought, I think it's safe to generalize, you need to get to 10 wins to make the playoffs. Yep. You're at 6-4. and four. You're at San Francisco, which, for the record, I have a horrible feeling about this game. Really? This could be Jimmy Garoppolo's debut, and what if he's really good? <laughs> I think Seattle's going to win. I have no faith. I'll put it that I way. I think they're going to win 12-9. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> like they did earlier this year. <laughs> Versus Philly on Sunday Night Football. Loss. At Jacksonville. Loss. That could be 12-9. Yeah, that could be. Either way, but that could be I mean, if Blake Bortles starts slinging it, I don't care how injured you are. That's a bad sign. Versus the (laughs) LA Rams. 
Loss. I'm going to say win. Okay. At the Cowboys, Loss. Zeke's first game back. Loss. And then versus the Cardinals. Win. Win. So three wins, that gets you to nine. So good luck. Well, we have him at nine and seven. Oh, yeah. Losses to Philly, Jayville, and Dallas. Yep. You got to win. T- I mean, I look. That- you got to go four and two in that stretch. Good the hell luck. Yeah. I, that loss to Atlanta, you couple it with the loss to Washington, that's going to define the year. Yeah. I, I don't know the how to do that. The two home losses, are, those are going to define the year. The, the, so. the only, look at the Rams schedule. It's going to be tough. The the only thing that that it still has the potential is the fact the Rams lost and Seattle still controls their own fate in the division. Rams versus the Saints. That's a tough well, one. Yeah. At Let's Arizona, win versus the Eagles. At the Seahawks. So, if the Rams go 1 and 3, you know? Yeah. Where would that put them? 8 and Well, then you have Tennessee too on the road, not a gimme. Well, the Rams are 7 and 3 now? Yeah. So they'd be eight and six going into at Tennessee versus San Francisco. Yeah. And if Seattle's able to, I mean, if Seattle wins that game, they have the tiebreaker. I mean, I think at this point you're hoping somehow you win the division. I think that's your basically only hope. Yeah. You've now lost how many games against the NFC if you're Seattle? Two? Packers, Falcons, Redskins. Three. Three. So that's bad for tiebreaker scenarios too. Yeah. You know, because your, your record is not good against your own conference. Road losses, like on the road to AFC teams, typically aren't damning. But it's when you start losing at home to teams within your conference or worse, within your division, which hasn't happened yet. Um, that's when things really can... Yeah, the Seahawks you know, are going to be on the outside looking into pretty much any tiebreaker because of these Redskins-Falcons losses. <clears throat> Common opponents, divisional record, I think conference record, all I think that. they're two best chances to win. Those let's let's talk about the four. Okay, let's assume they beat the Niners and the Cardinals. Okay, let's just assume for argument's sake they do. Okay, they're I think that their two best opportunities to win the other four games are Jacksonville, and I know you're probably surprised to hear me say that, but I'm going to say Jacksonville. Well, I, I'm not surprised by anything. St. Louis because they're all tough. Los Angeles at Jacksonville and versus the L.A. Rams. I think those are your two best chances. Well, I don't think. Well, you, that sucks. I don't think they have a prayer against Philly. I mean, I really don't. I think they can beat Dallas on Christmas Eve. Yeah, they can. They can Only, beat all of these teams in theory. Like I'm trying, I'm trying, good I'm trying to, to to rank the hierarchy. I might feel better about at Dallas than at Jacksonville, to be honest. Really, late kick Christmas Eve prime time type of field. Jerry Dome, Zeke is back. You know what if Dallas doesn't have Sean Lee in that game? I could see a lot of points indoors. Yeah. At Jacksonville on, on a Sunday morning out there. That's, I don't have a bad feeling about that. All right. Let's wrap it up there. He's Brian Perkins. I'm Judah Newby. We'll talk again on Friday ahead of the Seahawks visiting the San Francisco 49ers. This is still the Game Plan Podcast on 1029thegame.com.